John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John 13, beginning with verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God also God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going... You cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. How do we know who the real Christians are. How can we identify someone as a Christian? How can the world know who it is who truly belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it by a cross that maybe someone wears on a, a piece of jewelry? A witty Christian t-shirt. Maybe a bumper sticker. One of those little fish. I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's one of the little fish that's eaten the small little Darwin fish with legs. Have you seen those? Some of you, somebody here has one, I'm sure. That's exactly how you let the world know that you're a Christian. If somebody disagrees with you, eat them. Right? <laughs> Hopefully, it's obvious to you that there is no outward marking that says this person is a genuine Christian. No badge to wear, no card to carry, no special handshake, no supernatural glow around the body of one who is set apart, who belongs to God. When we consider this situation with Judas and what we discussed last week, how he appeared to be a true disciple of Jesus, but ultimately he rejected Jesus and betrayed Him. We might wish that there was a way to tell the difference. That there was some marking that we could check to see if someone really was a child of God. How do we tell the true converts from the false? As I've heard it said before, and I'm sure you have as well, the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. The real determining factor 
is whether someone has placed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. The only question that you need to ask yourself if you have ever wondered if you've truly been born again is this, am I right now trusting in Jesus Christ alone as my hope of salvation? No works, no merits, nothing you can earn in yourself, but are you trusting in Jesus Christ, your Lord, alone? Now only you can answer that question. I can't see your heart. You can't see mine. But God has revealed to us some areas in which Christians will provide evidence that their faith is genuine. For example, James 2.26 says, Faith without works is dead. True conversion, true salvation is received by faith only. Not by works, but a profession of faith that does not produce good works is not a genuine faith. It's a dead faith. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone without works, but true faith always produces works. And while the New Testament as a whole gives us several specific evidences that teach us what we can look for in the lives of those who profess to be Christians and in our own lives, Jesus taught His disciples the simplest and most basic form of it. He said in verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's work our way through the, the passage as a whole. Verse 31 says, So when he had gone out. That is who? Judas. Judas has gone out. Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Judas got up, he took the piece of bread, took his opportunity to leave, and he went out into the night, the final night of his life, and sought out those to whom he would betray Jesus. So now, Jesus has his true disciples to himself. He has the eleven from here through chapter 17, Jesus gives what we might call His last will and testament. He gives these disciples commands, warnings, and some of the most precious promises of God in the whole of Scripture in these last few hours that they have together. When we get to chapter 17, we'll see that Jesus didn't just intend for His disciples who were there in the room with Him to hear these things. It's not just for the eleven, but when He prays, He specifically extends these things to all who will believe in Him. That includes us. From chapter 13, verse 31, through chapter 17, everything that Jesus says to His disciples also applies to you. If you're his child. So now with Judas finally gone, Jesus declares to those who are truly his, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Did you get all that? Can we move on to the next verse? Now, now that Judas has gone and the passion of Jesus, the suffering of the Christ is upon him, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. In His suffering and death that is upon Him, that hour has come, what appears to be Jesus' doom will really be His glory. It was for this hour that He had come and Contrary to the wisdom of man, Jesus would bring human history to its pinnacle and carry out the act that would bring Him glory for all eternity. His death on the cross was not a defeat. It was not a win for the devil. It was the act through which Jesus would bring glory to Himself. Not only is Christ glorified in His death, but He says that the Father is also glorified. You see, being one in essence, being one God, Jesus can't receive glory without the Father also receiving glory. Because they are one in the same. But Jesus isn't glorified only by the sinners He saves, though we do glorify Him in being saved. But He also says in verse 32, If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself. God Himself is the source of Christ's glory. In Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, God has put the fullness of His glory on perfect display. If you want to see the glory of God in full display, look at the death of Jesus on the cross in obedience to the Father to save sinners. His glory comes from God. Jesus submitted Himself to the Father's will. He was obedient even unto death. And in His obedience, God Himself was glorified and He glorified Christ. There's just glory all around. Christ is glorified in His death. He brings glory to the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. They glorify each other and we glorify Him. This is not a moment of defeat. This is a moment of glory. But He doesn't just say that He'll be glorified then in the moment of His death. No, He also speaks of a future glorification that will immediately follow. He says He will glorify Him immediately. We know that look, being the resurrection, the ascension, His exaltation. We're only a couple of weeks from Easter and we're going to celebrate that day on which God put His stamp of approval on the work of Jesus by raising Him from the dead. He glorified Him in His resurrection. He was glorified in His death. He was glorified in His resurrection. And He was glorified in His exaltation. Because of His obedience to the Father, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus has come to an hour of glory. The hour is at hand in which He will experience His greatest suffering, but also the fullest expression of His glory. And so it is in this ever-important moment in human history. It's, the, it's out of the overflow of this imminent glory that Jesus begins to teach His disciples in these final hours. It's out of the reality of this moment that Jesus says in verse 33, Little children, little children, do you feel the tone of love in that? He's not saying, you guys act like children. <laughs> That's not what He means, though they did. It's affection. It's a term of endearment. Little children. I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek Me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come, so now I say to you, he speaks so gently. He doesn't have much time left and he knows that they won't understand at first. Back in chapters 7 and 8, Jesus told the Jews who were rejecting Him that He was going somewhere that they couldn't come. He said that to the Jews out of judgment. They had rejected Him and He said, I'm going away and you can't come with Me. And He says to the disciples, So now I say to you. Their hearts must have sunk. But He isn't telling them out of judgment. They haven't rejected Him. Because He'll say in verse 36, Where I'm going you cannot follow Me now, but you shall follow Me afterward. They just can't go now. He's telling His disciples this in order to prepare them for what's about to happen, for what is to come. He's telling them so that He may give them a commandment to follow. And He says it's a new commandment, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Why does He say this is a new commandment? Has God up to this point never commanded His people that they should love one another? Of course He has. God gave that commandment back in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. Remember that someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment in the law was earlier in His ministry. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God has commanded from the beginning of Israel's history that they should love one another. So why does Jesus call it a new commandment? What's new is not the command to love in itself. In fact, the command to love is very old. When Jesus calls it a new commandment, it's the practice and the standard of the love that is new. 
It's new in practice simply because the disciples hadn't been loving each other in this way. They've been too concerned about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, how they're going to rank among the other disciples. They haven't been practicing this kind of love. So it's new in that sense. But I think the greatest way in which this commandment to love is new is the standard of that love. Jesus says, love one another as, kathos, just as I have loved you. The command to love is new in the sense that Jesus' disciples are commanded to love one another just as He has loved them. No one has ever loved like Jesus loved. This is a new kind of love. It's a love like the world has never seen. It's a love that serves the prideful by showing them humility. It's a love that's patient with the slow to learn. It's a love that does not respond rudely or arrogantly when it's misunderstood. It's a love that's not irritable or resentful when it's not accepted. It's a love that stands for the truth even when it isn't what people want to hear. It's a love that lifts the burdens of others at its own expense. It's a love that hopes for the best even when others give you every reason to expect the worst from them. It's a love that endures through all things and never fails. On this very night, Jesus showed that love by humbly serving the disciples and washing their feet. On the very next day, He would demonstrate His love in the ultimate way by dying for them. There's no greater love that can be shown than that one should die for his friend. Jesus demonstrated the greatest act of love not only for the eleven who were in the room, but for you. He died in your place, took the wrath of God stored up for you, paid the penalty for your sin, all because He loved you as He loved these disciples. And now, He places this great responsibility on all those who would be His disciple. Love one another just as I have loved you. So, I think it's natural that we should pause and ask ourselves, are we loving one another in this way? Are we loving one another as Christ loves us? I think it starts with the person or the people you came to church with this morning? Are you loving your family in a sacrificial, self-denying way?
Do you hold it against her that you dropped what you were doing, you messed up your schedule for the whole day to go change her flat tire just because she wasn't paying attention to what was in the road? Do you leave the sock on the floor just to see how long he'll let it lay so you can throw it in his face later? Do you push the limits on your curfew and hope that your parents are in bed when you get home rather than respecting the rules that they've put in place for your own protection? We can chuckle about these things, but seriously, are we loving one another as Christ loved us? To put it simply, are you loving your family the way that Jesus loves your family? Let's broaden that circle. Are you loving your church family? Are you sacrificing anything to serve your brothers and sisters here? It's inconvenient to make a phone call. It's inconvenient to offer a ride. It's inconvenient to teach. It's inconvenient to disciple a younger believer. It's inconvenient to take the time to pray. But are you loving your brothers and sisters in your church the way that Jesus loves them? You don't have to like everyone. You don't have to like me. I'm sure some of you don't. You do have to love me like Jesus loves me. You have to love one another the way that Jesus loves each of you. You do have to serve one another in a humble, loving way. Jesus didn't say, you know, I would really like it if you would love one another. He didn't say, things will go better for you if you will just love one another. Please. No, Jesus says a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. As I have loved you, humbly, sacrificially, even to the point of death, that you also love one another. And then he says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love for one another is how the world should be able to identify true Christians. The historian Jerome says that when John, who wrote this book, was an old man, he repeated this verse often. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is why he said it, quote, Because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it be fulfilled, it is enough. Why should you love one another? One, because your Lord commanded you to. And two, because if we do it, 
it will be enough evidence to show the world that we really are Jesus' disciples. We must love one another. We need each other. The world needs our testimony. How much more likely will they be willing to hear our message when they look at the church and see this big family who's unselfishly and sacrificially loves each other? You're commanded to do it. Let's deal with these last three verses before we finish. Verse 36, we'll get there in just a second. Of course, Peter would be the one to speak up. That shouldn't surprise us by now. And it's like he's missed everything that Jesus has said about loving one another. It's totally gone. Over his head. He's still stuck on what Jesus said back in verse 33. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He, he heard that and went deaf to the rest. So he says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Peter's not the only one thinking it. Thomas brings it up in verse 5 of the next chapter. Peter just speaks up first. He's still stunned by the thought of Jesus going away. Jesus assures him again in verse 36, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. In one way, I think Jesus is hinting at the way Peter's going to die. See, right now, Peter can't go where Jesus is going. Peter can't do what Jesus is about to do. Jesus is going to the cross to die for sinners, including Peter. But Peter, you can be sure, you'll be where I'm going soon enough. History tells us that Peter did in fact go to his own cross as an old man. And he died as a martyr for preaching the good news about Jesus. But Peter's far from that point right now. He's not there yet. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus, I know that you're, you're the Christ, the Son of God and all, but I'm just going to be honest, I think your plan stinks. I don't want you to leave. Why can't I go with you? I'll go with you wherever you go. I will lay down my life for you. Even if these other ten guys forsake you, I won't. I will go with you all the way. Even to death. And Jesus gave Peter an answer that undoubtedly shook him. Verse 38, Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you, Peter? <laughs> you won't even make it through the night without denying me. Not just once. Not just in passing, but three times. 
That had to be devastating for Peter. We'll get to it next week, but I think it's right that chapter 14 begins with one statement, let not your heart be troubled, because I'm sure it was troubled. Peter has a little too much confidence in himself. And we have that same tendency, I think. We like to think, I, I would never do what those guys did. I'll be faithful. I'll do what's right. You don't have to worry about me, Jesus. All these other guys might let you down, but not me. <laughs> I'm with you to the end. That's what we think of ourselves. But how many of us have not denied our Lord like Peter did? Maybe we didn't outright say, I never knew the man. But maybe we just didn't say anything at all when we should have. Here's where Peter went wrong. He had too much confidence in himself and he simply wasn't listening to what Jesus commanded. Let me make a simple application for us before we finish. Don't be so worried about the things that you don't understand yet or the things you think you'll do down the road that you miss the obvious thing that Jesus has commanded you to do right now. Peter's mind is everywhere but right there where it needs to be. If you've experienced the love of God for yourself in salvation, if you've been born again, you are commanded to love one another just as Christ has loved you. If there's something about God or the Bible that you don't understand, work on that. Try to understand it. Yes, please, but don't neglect the clear thing that He's commanded you to do right now. Love one another. When you think about the future and all the things that maybe you want to do for God down the road, that's great. But don't miss out on the basic thing He's commanded you to do right now. Love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. For the truth that's been revealed to us that Christ has loved us with an everlasting love. That You chose us before we could ever choose You. You loved us when we were unlovable. Not while we were good or could offer something to you, did you love us, but when we were sinners, 
Christ died for us. I pray that if someone here has not yet known that love, that they would be open to it today and receive it. That they would put their trust in you alone as their hope of salvation and nothing else and be saved. I pray that we who have experienced that love would in turn love one another. You have commanded it and that is reason enough. But also that the world may know that we belong to you. May we be distinguished, set apart by love. In Jesus' name, amen.